Simple Beep, episode 89, macOS 10 at 20. Hello, and welcome back to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And it's been almost, well, it's been a little bit over a year since we last recorded an episode of Simple Beep, if you follow the calendar, or if you follow your heart, it's probably more like a decade. (laughs) The reason that we're back and what we're going to be talking about on this episode is a huge decade milestone, and it's the fact that macOS X is turning 20 years old as of the release of this episode. And it's wild because in 20 years, uh, the 10 has only gone up to 11. (laughs) I mean, I think it's actually quite remarkable that it has proceeded to 11. And of course, we will get to that at the very end. Uh, We always like to catch up to where we are in the in the present day. And that's at what, like 11.2.3 or something? Something like that. Yeah. Uh, Should we do any follow up? (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone's had a year and, uh, and and we're all caught up. So yeah, so before we get into the actual release of macOS 10 20 years ago and what it was and what it came to be and how it defined the 20 years that followed, of course there's a story about the development period and what led up to the actual public release of macOS 10. A rather disastrous development period for some time. And actually, we have covered one of the initial steps, the initial uh, seeds of the idea of Mac OS X in our episode 81 about the next transition, because of course, a lot of the intellectual property that became Mac OS X actually came over to Apple from Next. And then of course, Mac OS X, as we come to know it being the consumer-focused operating system that runs on all of our MacBooks, or back then PowerBooks and Power Macs, and eventually Mac Pros and always iMacs, Uh, wasn't actually the first public release of this next-generation operating system. You were able to get something that was titled macOS X before there was actually the macOS X we all think of, and that was macOS X Server, which came out at the start of 1999 and lasted almost to the end of October. And true to its name, it was uh, a server-grade OS, and there have been different versions of macOS Server that kind of kept pace with the consumer-facing Mac OS X, but it didn't look like Aqua in Mac OS X. No, it was quite obviously a version of Next Step with a Platinum interface glued on top of it. And I think that presaged a fairly strange history for Mac OS Server over many years. The fact that Apple maintained these ostensibly two distinct operating systems as Mac OS X, the consumer version, and Mac OS X server, the server version, <laughs> was a little bit odd because I used Mac OS X server like a couple times, and it really just felt like a usual installation of Mac OS with a couple additional apps that gave a couple additional features. And so it was a little bit weird. I think it makes sense that it was the first one and was so obviously rooted in the next heritage because the very existence or the, the, the decision to have these two forks of the operating system feels very nexty that they would think that, 
oh, well, the way that we set up computing systems is that there are servers and there are clients and that they should behave differently. Now that I think about it, I think I may have also used one of the later releases of Mac OS X server. And just judging it by name, I my mind goes to uh, like a web server kind of for the public internet. But the additional apps that you mentioned seemed more when I briefly interacted with it, like it was for a corporate intranet. Like there was stuff with wiki and uh, contact and email management within a single domain. Right. So maybe it was Apple itself who got the most use out of Mac OS X server, <laughs> building all kinds of internal tools on it and keeping all of their precious corporate data uh, close to the vest. That's what .Mac was run off of. That's why it was bad. Oh, no. <laughs> anyway, uh, Mac OS X server was the, the first public-facing release of something with the Mac OS X name. But we are talking about the kind of single installation version of Mac OS X. But even still, the version 10.0 that came out 20 years ago, as you listen to this, wasn't the first thing. It didn't just appear out of nowhere. Much like the modern cadence of announcing a beta at WWDC and then releasing it later in the fall, there were advanced copies that got better and better leading up to the release of Mac OS X. And it started with a purely developer preview, not a kind of mixed developer beta public beta like we have today. Yeah, it feels very much like the the old way of distributing things, but again, has that echo in today where the developer beta comes out as soon as the keynote presentation is over at WWDC and the public have to at least wait a couple of months. In this case, it was several, several months as the first uh, developer preview was in fact announced at WWDC totally making sense there, in 1999, but then the public didn't get any kind of access until over a year later in September of 2000. The developer preview of macOS X went through four major versions, like like things you had to update and install and start using over again. Um, and the first two of those four were kind of like macOS X server. They still had the platinum appearance of the classic macOS that was outgoing and soon to be laid to rest in a casket. <laughs> so it wasn't until Developer Preview 3, which was released during Macworld at the start of 2000, that we saw one of the tentpole features of macOS X, the Aqua user interface. And boy, is there a lot to talk about here. <laughs> and of course, it made a huge splash. It was not introduced at WWDC, which back around... 2000 was more of a second-tier event. It was at the primary Apple event of the year at Macworld. And it was... Everyone assumed that there would be a huge interface refresh with the long-awaited uh, reboot of the operating system. And in that respect, it did not disappoint. Of course, it came with the famous Aqua desktop background all in shades of blue, uh, the lickable uh, window widgets, including some new widgets that people didn't know exactly what they were for, <laughs> an infamous Apple logo put in the middle of the menu bar, and pinstripes. Oh, the pinstripes. Pinstripes everywhere. Some translucent, some not. Some extremely translucent to the point of illegibility. So it was quite a bit of a shock, and I think... Again, we have to 
think back to how we processed Apple News in the year 2000 and the fact that high-definition live streams of Apple Keynotes were not a thing, at best you were going to have good live blog coverage. And most likely you were waiting on magazine coverage to come weeks later to get the full story. So there was this room for rumors and just plain out falsehoods about what this new interface did to uh, to percolate in that intervening time. And I think the most pernicious one was that Steve Jobs introduced the new version of Mac OS X and you can only have one window at a time, <laughs> which was not strictly speaking true. The developer preview definitely did allow you to have more than one window at a time, but it also had a button that prevented you from having more than one window at a time. And while everyone in the audience, I think, was horrified by this notion, Steve Jobs seemed really into it <laughs> during the presentation. He turned on this mode, uh, and everyone was extremely confused about whether the computer that they were seeing on screen was a Mac or not anymore. So I have a quote here from Tidbits. Uh, this was later on uh, about uh, 10 years ago when someone discovered that this there was code that still corresponded to this mode lurking in Mac OS. Oh, they say, back in 1999, when Steve Jobs first showed off the new Finder in Mac OS X, it ran a single application mode where switching from one application to another caused the first application to minimize. This was the original demo of the genie effect. This was intended to be the default behavior, but it was so widely reviled that Apple quickly <laughs> changed the default. They loved those, like, or not processor intensive, GPU intensive transitions or effects, like the genie effect, which I think still to this day you can slow down uh, so you can, you know, bask in the uh the full glory of the genie effect or thinking about the single window mode the single application mode uh fast user switching i think used to have the full screen transition of like a cube rotating faces and each face was a different logged in user oh it still does <laughs> it still does oh my god but yeah these were the things that they were showing off and of course the genie effect smooshing a window down in real time was remarkable as the quick time window uh the movie still plays in the quick time window as it's being minimized and it continues in the dock yeah it was some really big stuff really cool right because in mac os 9 if you resized a window you got a little gray outline <laughs> obviously the aqua interface was the big uh new reveal in developer preview 3 developer preview 4 added some additional enhancements bug fixes you know how that works and then <laughs> <laughs> mac os 10 entered a public beta like ed said in September of 2000. And this was not something that you could just sign up and get on the beta certificate track and download. This was a paid product. Well, and it had to be. It was distributed on physical media. So it made sense that you were going to exchange money for being able to get your hands on a copy of the public beta. So it launched in September of 2000, and it was $29.95 at retail and introduced a few final things for people to uh, put through their paces before Mac OS X was official. I think one of the big bundled apps that came along with Mac OS X was Mail.app, which continues to this day and is maybe 
the subject of criticism, depending on how much you like it and how much you use it. But there were a bunch of other bundled apps um, of varying size and utility that came with Mac OS X. Some were modern counterparts of things that came bundled with classic Mac OS, like you used to have teach text and simple text. And in Mac OS X, you had text edit. But there were a couple that were only with the public beta and didn't make it through to the final release shipping version. And I think the one that I definitely fixated on in magazine screenshots and previews was something called Music Player, because this is a really narrow time window. (laughs) There was still no iTunes. Perhaps the SoundJam MP acquisition had happened and they were quickly scurrying to make iTunes out of SoundJam. But at the time of the public beta's release, there was no first-party application for playing these MP3 files that were starting to show up on your computer. Yeah, it was a four-month gap between those. So they had in the public beta this app called Music Player, which had a very early Mac OS X-looking interface that I think was repurposed into an Audion skin, and that's what I used for, for many months, and a playlist. Um, actually, in retrospect, it was just a lot like Audion. <laughs> a separate playlist window where you could add file MP3 files from your hard disk and arrange them. Uh, there were no iPods yet to manage, and I doubt it interfaced with things like the Diamond Rio. So it was a music player for local MP3 files, where I guess before you were using a third-party app or QuickTime player. <laughs> we'll get to some of the other technologies that Mac OS X introduced, uh, specifically the Quartz drawing layer, And um, there was another app included with the public beta that was not in the shipping version of macOS 10 called Sketch, which was to demonstrate the power of the Quartz graphic subsystem moving on from display postscript. So uh, Windows has MS Paint. The macOS 10 public beta had Sketch, which was vector-based, whereas Paint is famously low-res bitmap. Um, I mentioned text edit. This is something that I've only read about. I've never seen. Um, I would have loved to see what this was, but it was an app called HTML edit, which for all that I've read, sounds like it's maybe a version of these markdown apps that we still have today where you write in, I guess in modern days, markdown, and you can have another pane where you see the output of your markdown. And this was you write in HTML and there's a pane that shows you your finished product of HTML. And again, at the time, you were probably doing Claire's homepage or Adobe Dreamweaver. And this was a nice little bundled app for bare bones web authoring. The final app was something specifically for the public beta. It was simply called bomb.app. The bomb is a relic of the classic Mac OS signifying you know, a hard crash, a hard freeze. Mac OS X would have kernel panics. Um, and if you wanted to trigger a hard crash. They just built an app that would do that. Bomb.app. And apparently this was used in one of the demonstrations, I think maybe the DP3 demonstration at Macworld, to show off the new memory architecture that you could have some kind of just deliberate critical failure within an app, but not bring down the rest of the operating system. And everybody cheered. Simpler times, man. The big win was uh, preemptive multitasking in your memory space. Yeah. I mean, I've actually had a couple of uh, hard crashes on my Mac in the last few months. Um, I blame Google. I blame Google Meet. Um, And it's a very jarring experience when the mouse just stops moving and 
everything goes dead (laughs) and all the pixels stay fixed in place and your music cuts out. And it's an experience that is few and far between now, but was like daily or hourly as being a Mac user, depending on how many extensions you had (laughs) prior to Mac OS X. Something you just said gave me a very specific sense flashback uh, because you said your music stopped. But back in the old days, if you were using Apple CD audio player, which was literally using the CD drive in your Mac as a CD player, kind of writing to a different buffer outside the system, your music would keep playing. I don't think that there was any CPU processing being done on that, that they bought CD drives off of the shelf where the part itself decodes the audio and sends it out to the speaker and the software was just controlling that and it was hardware to hardware. So as long as you, as long as you kept the power fed to it, it would keep playing your music. Yeah, that was the public beta, uh, maybe like a six month period where for 30 bucks, you could be one of the first to experience the next generation Mac operating system. And I know for sure that, you know, the the place in life where we were in the year 2000, I did not have $30 to spend on experimental software, nor a computer of all of my own to install it on. So I have no primary experience with the public beta. I think we have secondary experience because we had an enterprising friend at our high school who ran a side business because I think he was the first person at our high school with a CD burner and with DSL at home. So he would kind of take requests for songs and make you mix CDs. Uh, But he also, I remember, spent or got his parents to spend the $30 and had the public beta and would just tell us about it. (laughs) More rumors. Yeah. Well, it wasn't too much of a wait after the public beta for the official release of Mac OS X where we then at least had a shot of being able to use it. That's right. So the official release was March 24th of 2001, it being no longer a beta, and it being the time when operating systems cost money and were not bundled with hardware, it was released for $129, a price which I think was the going rate for major versions of Mac OS X for some years after that. I think so. I think until... What's the famous Snow Leopard was like the the famous fix one. So that lowered the price. And then and then Lion was the first that was all digital distribution. Unless you asked pretty, pretty, please, can I have a thumb drive with it? Thinking back to this release in hindsight, uh, again, this is 2001. So the G4 is out and uh, the, like the iMac G3 has been out for a couple of years. Um, so the requirements for this, again, not just like it's a it's a forward thinking operating system, but it's also graphically intensive just to do everyday operations within the Finder. It was kind of a hard stop for the PowerPC pre-G3 era. And that made sense to me as I was going back looking at stuff for this episode. But there's a curious thing on the Internet Archive's cached version of the Apple Store listing for Mac OS X 10.0 that says uh, requirements G3 or higher, except the original PowerBook G3. And I'm sure there's a reason for that that is just eluding me. Other than that, uh, your other requirements were 128 megs of RAM, which was definitely above any of the computers we had in our house (laughs) in 2001, and uh, 1.5 gigs of free disk space. And I think the minimum install was around half that, which again was also kind of at a premium in our house. So it was, it wasn't until the next machine 
my family bought that came with OS X pre-installed did, uh, did I ever get to encounter it? Yeah, same for me, because we also had a G3 in the house, but it was a beige G3. And uh, yeah, if the operating system required 1.5 gigabytes of disk space, I believe we had a four gigabyte disk in that machine. So that was going to be a, a bit of an ask, especially because uh, you pretty much needed to keep around Mac OS 9, which we'll get to. So this was all additive. You really needed to have that free or be starting from a completely empty configuration uh, to get by with just the minimum. And looking up that uh, first PowerBook G3, it looks like it only had a 250 megahertz G3 processor, and maybe the uh, the RAM wasn't there. Its maximum memory was 160 megabytes. So um, probably most of those machines just didn't have the RAM footprint for uh, unless you had really souped it up. And here on this show, we've done an episode about Apple's use of the Roman numeral 10 and X. Uh, we've done episodes about physical retail software packaging. Um, all of these things kind of come together in the shelf presence of Mac OS 10. It's a, it's a big aqua blue Garamond X that kind of kept hidden its code name, which only you know two point releases later was the main marketing focus of Mac OS X. Because as we all know, if you're listening to this podcast, the code names for the first many versions of Mac OS X followed a, a pattern. Yeah, they were all big cats, starting with Cheetah being 10.0. Um, and that was the first of the big cats. It, there were uh, a couple of code names in the developer previews uh or it was either the last developer preview or the public beta was kodiak which is a bear not a cat <laughs> but yeah 10.0 established the uh the first as as a big cat and then uh puma was hot on its heels that's right which we'll get to as well so here it is it's march of 2001 you have a machine that runs mac os 10 and you get it installed What's new? What is so radically different from the classic Mac OS? And the answer is pretty much everything. <laughs> like we've covered in our next transition episode, the actual like the the code lying underneath everything that you see, everything the from the floor up was different. Um Mac OS 10 was built on a new kernel and I'm kind of punching above my weight in just trying to recite all these things, but uh the <laughs> The key word um, for the foundation of Mac OS X is Darwin. And um, I have a note here because I just finished listening right before we recorded. One of the recent episodes of the Accidental Tech Podcast had a user-submitted question, is Mac OS X still the foundation of iOS? Because that was a selling point in the original iPhone keynote. And in a manner of speaking, yes, um, all of Apple's operating systems still run Darwin at their core. Yeah, and the mock kernel. Yes, right. Uh, which, of course, relies on Unix technologies instead of all the, the mess that was the crash-prone uh, classic macOS. Right, and this was the huge conversation coming up to how is Apple going to make a next generation operating system. The first attempt was to do it in-house. The second attempts looked 
seriously at the B infrastructure or the or the Windows NT kernel. And what they landed on was the the BSD mock kernel, which came out of the Unix tradition of um, you know open software and uh, a long pedigree uh, in academia, Bell Labs, those kinds of things. So usually the you know the fact that you're running something called Darwin uh, that was the code that was running your operating system would be completely opaque and users wouldn't really care about it the same way that they didn't care about what what was the low-level foundation of classic macOS other than that they hoped that it worked. <laughs> but one of the things of bringing over the Unix tradition was the introduction of the Terminal app, which I think was a huge cultural shift for Mac users who were extremely used to everything being a GUI. And the notion of a command line, especially in uh, consumer computing applications, reeked of DOS and the other side that to totally misappropriate a Steve Jobs quote, if you see a command line, (laughs) they got it wrong. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the original Macintosh running version one of the original Macintosh system software was uh, a rebuke to the established command line based interfaces of other computing platforms. That's why it was the computer for the rest of us. And so Mac OS X kind of brought it full circle. Coming along with that were some of the things that like, if you started up in single user mode by pressing a key command, I think it was command S at startup, uh, instead of getting a happy Mac or even a pleasing gray Apple logo, you would just immediately dump into this thing that looked like a Windows PC starting up and telling you, you know, how many blocks of RAM it had, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, and it was very off-putting to many people, especially the notion that you might be expected or needed to rely on the terminal for some functions of your operating system. Right. Like some of the knowledge base articles, I'm sure, from this era, from this transitional era, probably had to guide end users through that process of of running what's the the famous one like fsck commands in single user mode and uh yeah that's that's a lot to ask someone to just you know follow a a k-base article while they're in kind of a high stress situation but to do so and have some unfamiliar looking computer environment while you're doing it you feel like you're breaking it even further Oh, yeah. There was something just within the last year where there was some bizarre issue where Apple uh, put out instructions where they're like, boot into recovery mode. Then in recovery mode, you can go to Safari. So before you do that, write down the website, oh, God. write down this URL so you can come back to this web page in recovery mode and copy out a paragraph of stuff to paste into the terminal. <laughs> to fix your computer. It's like, this is not the experience that Apple ever wanted. No, that sounds awful. And people were afraid that that was the kind of thing that would become the norm. This is like a horrible edge case and people still make fun of it today. Um, But just the fact that it was there felt like it was putting the toe in the door towards something bad. And, you know, I think that as we've come to love Mac OS X over two decades um, some people get by with never opening the terminal at all. And some people know that it's there and that it's um, 
you know, a little bit of a, of a magic spell that they can invoke at certain times, especially if they have someone guiding them along. I mean, heck, macOS 10 hints made, uh, an entire living off of one line terminal commands, <laughs> pretty much, uh, built an empire. <laughs> uh on the fact that there were these you know extra little secret things that you could do uh if you knew how this worked and then of course there was a whole host of people who had experienced unix in um you know in production environments or in academia or in research and they're like oh this is familiar these are you know the dr drangs of the world who still get most of their work done on a Mac by uh, typing two and three letter commands into Unix prompt. Uh, and it works great for them. So uh, it was a little scary at first, but it turned out to definitely be a positive aspect of the new Mac OS. And of course, like we've already alluded to, if there were a two-sided coin of what's new in Mac OS X, one is this the scary terminal-laden world of the Unix space and Darwin, and the flip side of that is the bright and beautiful, visually pleasing world of the Aqua user interface and the Quartz graphics subsystem. I think, like like has been mentioned already, um, Classic Mac OS had PostScript and Display PostScript, and Quartz was a leap beyond to the, <laughs> to the extent that uh, your graphics computing power would be taxed doing things like rendering potentially infinite levels of translucency if you just kept opening windows and tiling them over each other and uh, activating one or, or not activating the other. Um, shadows, uh, rippling looking effects as uh, progress bars filled up, um, pulsating blue buttons, like the interface was alive and just, you know, like recreating bitmap for bitmap, this interface on the old OS wouldn't have worked. Um, another thing about Quartz was it, it kind of brought PDF and being able to scale and, and vectorize a lot of elements uh, came to it. So now we have print to PDF in Mac OS X. Um, it kind of paved the way for Retina Macs to show up much, much later or high DPI mode as Cable Sasser was kind of hunting down before Retina became a thing. Yeah, in, in 2021, probably the most used uh, feature uh, that came out of adding in the quartz layer is the individual rendering of windows, which I didn't fully appreciate for several years into Mac OS X. But now everyone who uh, on a Zoom call needs to share one window and then realizes that even if you put other windows in front of that window, just its contents as if it were really truly a piece of paper that you could slide out from all of the other ones and see it all at once, it gets rendered out to your video stream for other people to see. And that all comes back to this quartz underpinnings of how the windows were being rendered. And it's great. They've sorted out all the bugs and it's optimized now. But I recall that there was also... It was like sort of a myth and sort of a reality that in early Mac OS X that um, you could literally slow down your computer by having more icons on the desktop <laughs> because effectively a bug, it treated each icon on the desktop like a window, like a separate layer. And so if you had a hundred files on your desktop, it was the same as having a hundred windows open <laughs> oh my God. and asking your, your poor little grinding G3 
with a spinning hard drive to render all of that all of the time in the background, even when you weren't looking at it. Speaking of icons like you just did, that's a that's a nice transition to another part of the Aqua interface that made it feel substantially different from the platinum interface of the outgoing classic OS. Um, I think we've, we've had episodes about icons and the icon community, and we were kind of confined to that 32 by 32 pixel grid for so long. And the biggest uh, advance there was the leap to millions of colors and translucency and the masking, but the leap to the gigantic icons and the human interface guideline recommended style for those icons was, I think, even bigger. Definitely. And uh, this was an area that also had some growing pains. Uh, It was pretty obvious in the developer previews that icons were a bit of an afterthought. And the way that the icon formats had developed in classic macOS was, it was very methodical. You started with a 32 by 32 grid of black and white pixels. And then we added color. And then we added more colors and an alpha channel. But it was still operating in that very restricted 1024 pixel canvas. And then Mac OS X opened this up and said, oh, oh, by the way, the default icon size is now 48 by 48. And everyone goes, okay, well, we can make pixel perfect things in that. And it's like, no, there's a slider. Yeah. And they can go up to 128 by 128. And everyone went, well, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? And Apple says, well, we don't really much know either. We just kind of pasted photos in here. I was just going to say, a lot of the icons in the pre-release versions look like when I first started trying to make icons and it would just copy and paste things into the Git info window and it would squish it down. Yes, before you discovered ResEdit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you made vector vector art in uh, Claris Works and then just pasted it into Get Info. And, you know, it would squish it down. It would probably, I wouldn't have copied it in a perfect square ratio. So, you know, one thing would, one dimension would be more squished than the other. And some of these things that, that made it out into these preview releases look a lot like that. Yeah. There's one where there's a, like an application icon and, um, it looks like they took, it's supposed to have a sort of uniform 3D perspective, the way that we think a good 3D icon should look. Uh, but instead it looks like they just took the uh, skew tool in Photoshop and just went in four different directions. <laughs> it was flying off at a random angle. Certainly when Mac OS X first came out, or maybe, you know, developer preview three, when Aqua first came out, and then with every major, uh, like resolution breakthrough, someone will do the thing like here is, uh, like a standard icon in Mac OS X put at a native resolution of the original shipping Macintosh, which was 512 pixels across. And it's the whole screen or it's like beyond the entire screen. Or you can put the entire original Macintosh screen between the icons on an iPad Pro. <laughs> so there was a lot of room to play with there. Um, you know, in one respect, it, it was interesting. It, I think in hindsight, we can see it as Apple, one of Apple's first big steps in wanting to take control of user interface um, was the fact that they almost said these new Aqua icons that we made are so good that you won't really need to customize your icons anymore. You're not going to want to paste things onto your folders to to give them a different look. Just these blue folders forever are going to be all that you need. They're so great. And another kind of interface paradigm associated with icons that has persisted to this day 
and I think is a kind of a big part of our lives, whether we think about them or not, or you know, try not to think about them, is the red notification bubble on an application icon. Uh, I think you know, in the classic Mac OS, when you opened an application and it was actively running, the icon kind of got filled out. I forget. What's a great way to describe this? Yeah, it, there there was the outline of the icon and then it turned that like weird purple texture. Yeah. And so like you weren't meant to, obviously there wasn't a dock, um, but you weren't meant to refer back to that application's icon as any kind of status. If something, uh, if an alert, popped up and it needed your attention. I think the most intrusive it got was uh, flashing the application who needed your attention's 16 by 16 icon in the application menu at the upper right of your screen. There were no such thing as these notification bubbles, let alone kind of the growl style notifications that later would be baked into the OS. Right. But there was the precursor of this was in the mail app, right? Where yeah. it actually showed the number of unread items in your inbox as i think the overcast settings now say to to add stress to your life (laughs) exactly the mail.app that shipped with mac os 10 i think is the first certainly the first like widely known mass adopted application to use this notification bubble number style was it a straight circle or did it have the little starburst like a like a sticker yeah it was like yeah it's a little starburst because we're in like web 2.0 era with everything's on a shiny table and there's just a little bit extra bit of design on everything that we're doing yeah so eventually that got smoothed out to the red circle which then got uh iconified even more i mean like heck i looked down at my watch and there's just a little red dot at the top. It doesn't even have a number in it, but it means there's a notification waiting for you. Mm-hmm. Other things that were added that swept away beloved interface of the past and introduced uh, new pieces of iconography that are known universally, even to non-Mac users, uh, out with the watch cursor whenever you were waiting for something and in with the infamous spinning beach ball. Which is not really a beach ball. Uh, <laughs> it's true. It's, it's a- just round and has a rainbow spiral on it. But it became known as the beach ball and like entered the lexicon. Uh, you know, your computer can beach ball, which means that it is it is stuck doing something and you are unable uh, to fix it. And I'm sure that that has crept out beyond just the people who use Mac OS X to, to mean that same kind of thing. Being in a state where uh, no further processing can happen. <laughs> I am busy. But I remember when they, they said that, like, no, there's not going to be a watch cursor. And it felt like a betrayal. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, you, you know, that was one of the things of um, of classic Mac OS was that you're almost always looking at the pointer which was black with a white outline, which was correct, unlike Windows, uh, which was white with a black outline and was <laughs> wrong. <laughs> and like the geometry of the pointer doesn't make sense either. That That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. And then uh, if you were waiting for something in macOS, it was the very tasteful little watch uh, where it just spun around and around and around. Um, whereas in Windows, there was an hourglass, which was like, okay, I see what you did there. You didn't want to get sued by having a watch. <laughs> uh, so to eliminate it, it felt like um, 
what do you mean? That's <laughs> waiting for things and staring at a watch cursor is, is a key part of using the Mac. But no, they, they thought that the, the beach ball was more whimsical. Um, and it became a huge part of using Mac OS X because there was frequently a lot of waiting. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, now it's, uh, it's a bit less common. And it's been flattened, of course. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Now, now it's literally just a rainbow pinwheel. One of the other interesting new Aqua interface elements was the introduction of Sheets. Uh, again, going to that notion of every window being independent, apps being totally independent, a new multitasking paradigm. Um, so instead of having a dialog box that is going to uh, get in the way of everything, uh, or a modal dialog that's just another window that can get lost in the shuffle, instead, introduce this concept of what if we took those things like, hey, do you want to save this or not save it or cancel and actually attach it to the document that it went to? That would make a ton of sense. You would visually see that um, that this goes with that window. Um, it's been 20 years and sheets can <laughs> sometimes still be confusing. <laughs> the ones that were one-to-one replacements of very typical dialogue boxes made sense, but the sheet has been repurposed and reused in so many bad places (laughs) that it's hard to say that it's a total net win over time. We've gone into the weeds here on Aqua and and skipped over one of the things that's staring you in the face when you open up a default installation of macOS, and it's, it's this thing that's not the menu bar and not the desktop. It's the dock, of course. We've become blind to it at yeah, this we, point. Yeah, it's a standard. It's part of the, part of the furniture. <laughs> I was just talking about the application menu, which I think maybe as of macOS 9 or maybe 8.6, you could kind of tear off and have an application switcher representing your open applications, which is maybe the closest thing before macOS 10 to a dock. But this was a permanent thing. Uh, by default, anchored to the bottom of your screen, but you know the true pros will move it <laughs> to the left or the right. Uh, that not only had your currently running applications, but would have shortcuts to commonly used applications, maybe taking the place of the launcher in uh, classic macOS, or even all the way back to like a very very rudimentary version of something like at ease. <laughs> and uh, of course, it carried with it. Not just the functionality and the utility, but the the aqua e goodness. So it's it's got its own distinct style that I think in 10.0 had very subtle pinstripes running through its translucent background. The the trash can rendered in new modern beauty as opposed to the kind of dingy takeout to the curb trash can that Oscar the Grouch <laughs> lived in. Um and at, at I think at 10.0, uh, the dock lits where they're kind of like the menu bar extras that you could control airport strength and uh, monitor resolution from your dock instead of your menu bar. Put a big analog clock in there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, just so many things. Um, that was another way to get around your Mac. And it was kind of home base for gratuitous animations. Of course, when you did the genie effect, things went into and out of the dock. And then also the fact that when you hovered over icons in the dock, they magnified oh, that's right. quite it, reasonably dramatically by default. And uh, if you went into the settings, you could make it ludicrous, <laughs> <laughs> showing off the full size of those huge icons. 
And of course, they would bounce when they were opening, which took the place of the the zooming rectangles coming out at you from the icon, a different uh, style of opening animation. Yeah, the dock, man. It's it's just taken for granted now. Do you use dock magnification at all? No, I have it hidden and it's on my right edge. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm the last power user who uses any dock magnification. And I have it set at like one pixel higher than the icon size, just so that if I hover over the dock, uh, I have some indication of whether it has crashed entirely. <laughs> like if if things are going really wrong and uh, some process has just totally gummed up your Mac, even today, like the dock will quit. Like it it'll just be like, no, I can't magnify anymore. And you're like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. That's a good test. My test for that in the classic Mac OS days was to have flashing seconds in the menu bar clock. Oh, yeah. And uh, once those stopped, then you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that's like a, an overview of the overall interface. But uh, there were some specific tweaks to the way that the the home base environment of your Mac felt and operated. And that's, of course, Finder. Now, I guess, Finder.app, the Macintosh Oh, what does it say? The Macintosh browsing experience? In the Macintosh the- desktop experience. Yeah, there you go. The first thing that I remember being like a, a disorienting change is that in classic Mac OS, whenever you double clicked on a folder, it opened a new finder window showing the contents of that folder. And if you closed that window, it might zoom back into the icon in the preceding window. But the behavior, at least the default behavior... <laughs> of Mac OS 10 is there's really like one finder window that you do your file navigation and essentially your browsing in, which was the model for Windows 95 and Windows 98, which by that time I was using at school. And so that's why it was disorienting to me because it felt like a Windows machine, not just unmac like but specifically Windows, like Windows Explorer. And I hated it at first. <laughs> me too. Uh, and I still hate it. And I aggressively <laughs> turn off the toolbar on Finder Windows so it doesn't do that. <laughs> um, but I think that the real answer was that it was yet another Nextism, Because Next didn't use the the forward and backward like a web browser uh interface as its primary, they said, no, we are sophisticates, and we have (laughs) determined that the ideal way for navigating your file hierarchy is in column view, where you have one window that's split into multiple columns with the higher levels at the left, drilling down into the lower levels at the right. And naturally, that's all contained within one window. And I also rejected that in the early <laughs> days of, of OS X, saw column view and went, what is this here for? This is stupid. <laughs> um, I finally grew to love column view it, only when I, like only five or six years ago, when I was working at a job where almost all of the files that we had to work on were stored on a network share that was accessed via SMB. And it was not particularly responsive, and especially when loading up folders that had hundreds or thousands of items in them. And if you went with the old-style navigation of like, hey, I'll open up a new window for everything, 
you would get into this sort of weird hanging state and the finder really hated it. Like it would just be like, oh, oh no, like we're stuck here doing, doing network access. But if you went into, uh, or, or if you had drilled down and then wanted to go back up, it's like, well, gotta reaccess all the things at the higher levels. (laughs) But if you did it in the column view, you had access to everything that you had, uh, drilled down to and everything above it. Um, in a uh, less laggy uh, interface. And again, probably exactly the motivation for Next developing that kind of system was they were doing things on a server and client approach. Uh, Steve Jobs, when he came, I think it was, wasn't it like the 97 uh, WWDC Q&A where, or, or shortly thereafter where he's like, wouldn't it be great if you could just sit down at any Mac and your files are just on a server somewhere and you just access them over the network. Um, so that was kind of, that's how I think that interface got started and then, uh, still lives on in, in OS 10. And, uh, one thing about that column view is, uh, you know, if you're using it to page up and down folders in a hierarchy, once you selected one in your current column, the column to the right would open up with the contents of the selected folder, of course. But if the thing that you were selecting in your currently focused column was a discrete file, um, what would they show in the column to the right of it? Obviously, it doesn't contain anything. Although I guess if it's an app bundle, gosh, something else we'll get to. Um, <laughs> it is a directory. But if it was a an image file or a QuickTime file, what would that right column show? It would do some of the work of Git info, which did carry over from classic Mac to Mac OS X. But it was kind of a precursor to Quick Look, which now is another thing I take for granted that, that I don't have to open an application to see the contents of uh, a file. But that was revolutionary then. The notion, the notion that you could see into a file without using an application was was wizardry. Exactly. That's that's all I wanted to say is that like that was the thing that sold me on column view. Is it kind of unlocked this secret power? <laughs> when you were navigating around in uh, column view, you might decide that you actually wanted to get to places quickly. And one of the ways that you could do that was you could drag things up into the toolbar, a customizable toolbar in Finder Windows that, again, made it feel a bit web browsery. Uh, because I think at that point, uh, things like, like Internet Explorer 5 yep. was like the only app that I had ever customized a toolbar in that way before. And this was saying, no, this is a first class experience on the Mac. And the finder supports it. You can, you can right click on this toolbar and, and edit the items in it. And then the same thing in many of the other first party apps like mail and text edit. And then, um, it was made clear to developers that also you should offer these customizable toolbars in your apps. Mm-hmm. That covers the, uh, the functionality of the finder windows. Then there are the things that you might find within them. Um, like like this extremely uh, strange folder with your name on it, <laughs> right? With the icon of a house, and uh, I don't I don't want this. Also, there's something that's called library. Well, I don't. I ebooks don't exist yet. I don't want this either. I want to throw all these things away. <laughs> the the greatest mistake they made in these early versions, back with the iconography, is the fact if they just called it library and gave it a plain blue folder icon, people might have not done anything with it even better would have been if they took one of the little like classic uh happy mac kind of 
or, you know, Mac outline icons and put that on there. Um, then people will be like, Oh, that's a system folder kind of thing, right? It's blessed. But instead they put pictures of leather bound books on it, <laughs> which was a huge mistake. Um, yes, leading to the, the infamous stories of Merlin Mann deleting his library <laughs> folder. <laughs> uh, I never made that mistake. I, I read in a magazine what the library was for and that you should mostly, um, just leave it be. But again, this felt a sort of a Windowsy thing that, um, that there would be folders with names where you were expected to put things as opposed to the previous Mac way was that you had a disk and at the root level of the disk, you put whatever you wanted. The only thing that you had to put in a specific place was if that was your startup disk, the system folder had to be at the root level of the startup disk. And specifically, if there were ways you wanted to customize the way that your system looked and behaved for you, because with the you know kind of bad exception of macOS 9 multiple users, a Mac was a single user device. So if you you were assumed to be the only person using it or... If you were making the decisions, everyone else using it would live with it. So if you wanted to you know, do things to make the Mac your Mac, you would do it, like Ed said, at the root level, in the system folder or wherever. But a lot of those things, there was a system folder at the root level of a Mac OS X hard disk, but you couldn't mess with it. You had to do all that tinkering and stuff. Well, I mean, you could back then, but... Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you shouldn't have. <laughs> to your detriment. Um, yeah, and and... This was one of the things um, in the classic Mac OS, the only place that applications could count on there being certain places for things was in the system folder, which of course led to getting totally gummed up in your system folder by apps putting stuff there um, willy-nilly. Abuse. <laughs> uh, yeah, abuse of the system. Um, and then, But then the fact that in Mac OS X, you had folders like pictures and documents and music that apps knew would always be there, led to similar abuse, especially of the documents folder, mm -hmm. to the point that um, I think starting in about 10.3, when I first had my own Mac running Mac OS X, I tried to put my things in the documents folder because I, I figured, well, yeah, that makes sense. I, I'm okay to try out this organizational system. But so much junk would get automatically put there by other apps that I couldn't even find my own stuff. And so for literally over 10 years, I had a folder in my home directory that was called Real Documents. <laughs> and um, to this day, I occasionally find myself invoking LaunchBar and typing RD as like that's where everything lives mm -hmm. um because this like dark pattern made me go to this other folder um i think that now in the sandboxing era for one and just because uh people realize that it was a bad look there are only a couple of applications that do that and for those i've created hazel rules that immediately throw those things in the trash <laughs> nice so i can live out of uh slash users, slash ad, slash documents. <laughs> so those were a lot of things that were brand new in Mac OS X and became the way that using a Mac would be for the following 20 years. A whole lot of adjusting to do. <laughs> a lot. And um, some of it was uh, an update or a refresh of things that we were used to. Some of them were brand new things that were kind of built on top. Uh, but of course, there's uh, another 
element to it of some things, some apps, some interfaces, some behaviors from the classic macOS were just done away with uh, a little bit of a fresh slate. Right. Because people came to this and said, okay, Steve Jobs, you've told us what the new uh, version of macOS is going to look like. I'm already running something called macOS. It's been called that since since 7.5.3. So obviously all my apps are going to run on this because apps cost uh, hundreds of dollars yeah. and and I, I am not made of money. I'm going to give you $130 for this operating system that will run all of my old apps, to which Apple said, yes, big asterisk. So again, this is a little bit punching above at least my understanding, but uh, when you talk about the APIs and the software development kit for writing these apps, writing third parties writing software for the Mac. You know, it's a nebulous process to begin with, but it was even more so before Mac OS X. What did you have to like? Um, MetroWorks Code Warrior. That's right. And Mac Pascal before that. That's right. That's right. Uh, and they would follow, you know, the, the, they would write in, I don't even know, Pascal, obviously, C, um, C++. And then uh, the there was a new set of APIs to work with the new Unix-based operating system called Coco. You know, that's the forward thinking. That's the new normal. That's the new base. Um, Apple said, we will make uh, another set of APIs that's kind of cross-platform, kind of a little bit of classic Mac OS, kind of a little bit of Coco forward-thinking OS that should be easy, you know, asterisk, asterisk, for developers to update their existing applications so that uh, to use these new APIs so that they can exist in this transitional period on both. And that was the Carbon APIs. This was the first attempt at, we've thrown out all of the new things and all you have to do as a developer is just click recompile in Xcode. Unfortunately, (laughs) it took them another decade or so for that to become anywhere near reality. I remembered all like Carbon environment and carbon related system extensions that all of a sudden popped up when I updated Mac OS nine to like 9.0.4 on my machine that was stuck in the past at home. And I'm like, what is this stuff? And thankfully I didn't get into a trash your library thing because uh, I think it would have had a, a similar result. <laughs> but uh, I think it is it for all the, you know, <laughs> the stuff we just said, it was kind of a smart thing because um like me still only existing on Mac OS nine could update apps, third-party apps that I use that would start to run on carbon APIs. And um, it would be pretty much transparent to me, the end user stuck on Mac OS nine, even though this was now kind of a, a cross-platformy app. So for all the, the kind of jankiness that it may look like on paper, I think it was, it worked pretty well. Sure, but even that system required some work on the part of developers. And obviously, there are always apps that are critical to people's workflows or just their happiness um, that are not being actively maintained. Or even if they are being actively maintained, the, the developer has limited resources and time. And, and uh, these things are not as instantaneous as Apple yeah. would hope. So what about those apps? Um, Well, if you really absolutely desperately needed some apps that would only run in the old ways of classic macOS, the first piece of advice was just boot into classic macOS. Right. If you had a machine that that could bridge that gap. And that's how it was at the initial launch. Every machine could 
run both classic and Mac OS X. And it was really recommended that you didn't just blow away your installation of Mac OS 9 the day that you installed Mac OS X, or you would be sad. Um, for one, because it was required if you took the other path, which was to run your app in classic mode, where we get the name classic Mac OS in, in a sense. Um, and if you launched an app in classic mode, a little thin aqua window appeared at the top of your screen with a progress bar that said that the classic environment was starting. And there was a disclosure triangle. I think modern Apple would not include the disclosure triangle because if you clicked the disclosure triangle, it was revealed to you that what was happening was your Mac was starting a complete installation of Mac OS 9 <laughs> with the extensions marching across the bottom of the screen in a window. Yep. So it wasn't emulation, right? Because Mac OS 9 was, was native on these machines, but it meant that in an era where you still sometimes in classic macOS had to go to the get info window and adjust the memory <laughs> allocation of yeah. apps to make them work, you are now running two full operating systems on that machine, including the new one, which was very hungry about being able to draw its lickable icons. <laughs> That's right. I, I mean, the one great trick of that was that you saw the startup process in a window and then you might think, okay, so then you're just running Mac OS 9 in a window. Everything, everything has to fit within those bounds. But no, as soon as it got to the OS 9 desktop, the window went away, was hidden. And then when you launched, when that app then got the chance to finally launch, all of its windows lived interleaved with the Mac OS 10 windows, but they were still platinum, a hundred percent. Um, all mixed in with the shiny new Aqua and, it was not a good-looking experience. Their 32 by 32 pixel icons were upscaled to match whatever size your dock was, including magnification. And so you got a lot of jaggies in there. But I definitely remember doing this. I mean, there, I think for a couple years of... Well, I don't know if it was a couple years of us being cheap or just complete lack of availability. But you know, we ran on Claris Works, right? Mm -hmm. Later, Apple Works. Right. And then... AppleWorks did go carbon so that you could launch it uh launch it natively in OS10 but there was a while there where no it was it was opening up classic for basically all of the files that I had I mentioned Claris homepage earlier and when I was dabbling on HTML based static sites in college I was still when I needed to to kind of fudge it with a WYSIWYG I would still boot classic and then boot like version 3 of Claris homepage from 1996 to help me through it. So there was that way to, uh, if you had to run all of your old applications, it may be not the best experience, but that not all software is applications, right? So uh, there were things that were just completely cut off. Of course, anything that lived in the old system folder, um, again, were key pieces of software in the classic era, extensions and control panels. Everyone knows that you absolutely need tilde ATM in your extensions <laughs> folder <laughs> to make the fonts render properly in Adobe apps. Uh, and you may have had uh, control panels that you loved to use because they brought certain functionality to your machine um, or, you know, some of the wild things like kaleidoscope, right? Yeah. There were no hooks for that into 
the into the underpinnings of Mac OS X. And so they were all just completely out. Um, and of course, developers soon learned that there were these things called kernel extensions and that uh, you could do uh, good or evil with them. <laughs> right. Uh, and that there were ways of significantly customizing this new protected, uh, you know, memory protected architecture in the new operating system. But uh, a lot of the flexibility that people thought of as inherent to macOS went away with uh, the elimination of those two key areas in the system folder. Another thing that lived in the system folder was really just a harmless little folder full of aliases. It was called Apple Menu Items. Apple saw the error of their ways of just putting a, an Apple logo in the middle of the menu bar where it got in the way of things, especially on laptops from uh, Developer Preview 3. But when they put the Apple menu back in its rightful place, they didn't restore its functionality. Uh, it basically took over the functions of what used to be the special menu in the Finder, right. yeah. which went away. Things like shutting down your Mac. Uh, or now in in OS X, logging out of your user account. It retained some of the things like recent items that used to be uh, a feature of uh, the Apple menu. Again, just made up with aliases, though, <laughs> Yeah, in classic macOS. But there was no place... People really relied on the Apple menu as their hub of all activity. And the answer was, well, put it in the dock. And now that I think of it, that's a totally valid replacement for that functionality. But I think just, you know, people hate change. And just the fact that it was in a different place in the screen, it, it was enough. Uh, I mean, one of the big Apple menu hacks was, oh, just put an alias of your hard drive. Exactly. There. And then once we had hierarchical menus starting in Mac OS 8, uh, you could just drill down all these levels in a menu with a mouse. Well, in current Mac OS... You can put an alias of your hard drive in the dock and say view as list, and it gives you hierarchical menus. It does. It's all still there. Yeah. But it was another one of those things where a, a seemingly minor change and really not that much removal of functionality felt like uh, a piece of culture was taken away rather than just a, a feature was moved. It's especially to that culture point, the Apple menu in classic macOS was the six-color Apple that we know and love from that era. And I think more because the corporate Apple logo and the logo on its hardware was moving to monochrome, whether it was, you know, like a, a black or a white for printing purposes or reflecting the color of the iMac that you had bought. Uh, the macOS 10 Apple menu was always a single tone and now has been reduced to being just uh, monochrome. Yeah, do you remember that... that uh it was sort of the late Aqua period where uh, the primary Apple logo was graphite with a little swoop through it. Yes. Yeah. That was that was a weird time. <laughs> <laughs> it was a shiny aluminum, right? The beginning of Johnny Ives aluminum and glass. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's see. What else were we missing at launch? Um, oh, well, all your, you know, your classic. I, I said, OK, like uh, your classic apps will launch. Um you, you know, you'll have to boot up that classic environment. You can say, ah, okay, well, good. 
at least I can still do half of the things that I do with my Mac sh- because I will have res edit. To which macOS 10 said, no, you will not because files no longer have resource forks. <laughs> and this was sad. This was definitely sad because this was the way, Ed, certainly you and I grew up, you know, tinkering with the Mac and the way that it unlocked the creativity part of your brain, um, the bicycle for the mind type stuff. And that hurt, right? Like you could not only just customize your system, but with resource forks, like that's how you made escape velocity plugins. And that's how <laughs> you would, you could customize pretty much anything graphically or um, the, the sound component. Uh, if you were okay with the code and the way that the, the application ran, you could almost certainly open it up with res edit and tinker the way it, it felt and looked and sounded. And that went away with the disappearance of resource forks in the Unix based system. And we know that ResEdit was a very sharp knife, right? And you you could cut yourself yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you didn't know what you were doing or if you were being uncareful. Um, and the kind of replacement for that in Mac OS X is the terminal, right? I mean, part of the reason that the terminal was scary was I think one of the first things that I learned about the terminal was in a Mac Addict article where they're like, what's the terminal? And then they had a list of like top 10 things you should never type into the terminal culminating in rm-rf slash. <laughs> um, it was like, oh, oh, this, this is potential danger here, but also a potential huge benefit. Um, but the incantations of the terminal, uh, are hard to learn or you, you know, you have to, go to Mac OS 10 hints and be like, here's a one-liner for the thing that you wanted to do because someone discovered it as opposed to ResEdit that because the GUI of ResEdit was so good, you could go in and be like, oh, these are all the things that are in this application. Oh, like they're in categories and some of them are just little zeros and ones, but some of them have icons. So I can intuit what is what is going on here. And, and that was gone. It was a couple years after using Mac OS 10 full-time for me, where I realized that right-clicking on an application and doing show package contents did reveal uh, after one or two levels that there's a resources folder, which was somewhat like the resource fork of an application in the old days in that if the app was constructed that way and not heavily reliant on kind of proprietary storyboards or heaven forbid, some kind of bundled library, uh, you could kind of swap out some sound effects, which were usually like AIFFs or waves, um, or you could swap out some PNG or PDF resources and get back to it. But Ed, like you were saying, ResEdit gave you a GUI to step through it in a way that felt intuitive. And this is just a hair above doing commands in the terminal when you're just swapping out literal files for each other. Right. And I got the impression very quickly in the early OS 10 days that yeah, you can go in there, but that's like a read-only zone. And that actually changing the things in app bundles could lead to serious problems. Um more so like with less flexibility than than in ResEdit. Like if you gave something the same um the same resource ID in ResEdit, like unless you replaced like a two kilobyte sound with a 400 kilobyte sound <laughs> and you you crashed the app. Yeah. Uh, like pretty much anything was possible. And now today you can still view the contents of an app, but it's literally like you, you will break it if you change anything in there because everything is cryptographically signed. <laughs> oh, that's right. So yeah, resident was, was a big loss. Um, 
Although I've opened up ResEdit uh, in emulation sometimes recently and gone, wow, like I was really doing like half of the things on my Mac with, <laughs> with this app. Mm-hmm. But I I do a broader range of things now. I just had to take a long time to learn new tools and new paradigms. We were growing with the Mac. So I think that covers lots of things that were added at the beginning, lots of things that were that were gone and required various length periods of adjustment to uh, get used to their absence and come up with uh, equal or better replacements, or sometimes just not. <laughs> but that was only the beginning of the, the OS X story. We've had two whole decades that have intervened. So uh, to finish off the episode, I think we should uh, do our traditional whirlwind chronology and say, what are the things that uh, that were not part of the original Mac OS X that by now we may even take for granted? And, and at what point did they, did they come along? And this first bullet point that you have in here made me laugh when I got to it. <laughs> <laughs> so right, when we, were, when we were compiling the outline for this show, Brian had put a bunch of like uh, capitalized app names and features and stuff in, in this list, uh, along with their uh, the versions that they started at. And it, he started at, uh, you started at 10.2. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, well, no, we have to have 10.1 in here. And the thing that was missing uh, before 10.1 was performance. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we talked about how when Mac OS 10.0 was released, it was a $130 operating system. And that many of the versions that followed were also $130. Well, not Mac OS 10 10.1. It was rather quickly released, and it was a mere $30 to cover, you know, shrink wrapping a DVD and all that, uh, because Apple wanted it in the hands of as many customers as possible because they wanted Mac OS 10 to not be bad anymore. (laughs) Hot fix. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, this is the kind of thing where uh, if these were the bugs that you were dealing with now, you would just get a push notification that's like, please, please run this. If you you don't actively opt out of this, I will do this while you sleep. But it cleared up uh, it cleared up a lot of those initial things. Um, and I think there were a couple interface tweaks too. Uh, this might have it was either from uh, the developer preview to 10.0, but I think it might have been 10.0 to 10.1 where they made it so that you could actually read the title bars in inactive windows again. Yeah, that's that's a something that John Syracuse would cover in his lengthy reviews of every major release or even people like um, Stephen Hackett has his uh, brushed metal. Uh, anthology, I think. John Gruber has stuff on brushed metal. The way that the pinstripes and the um, colored clear glass and brushed metal moving to unified slabs of gray progressed over the entire run of Mac OS X is something I don't think we even want to get into. We'll link to uh, Stephen's archive of the screenshot archive of every major version of Mac OS that's still current and that he still spends a great amount of time on every year and is is really invaluable to anyone who wants to see the history of this. But getting back to features that we take for granted as baked into the Mac OS today, um, Safari, a first-party web browser, didn't come along until Jaguar, uh, Mac OS 10.2. And the same goes for a chat client, which today is Messages, but at launch in 10.2 was iChat, and it was really interfacing with um, AIM, but Safari, I think, is 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 
I mean, that's the big one. Uh, I was listening to some podcasts the other day, and they were talking about, well, when did Safari launch? And they're going, I'm going 2003. I know it's 2003, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that fact is in my brain. But then when we were putting this together and going, well, it's been 20 years, 2001, like it, I didn't put those two facts together that I know that OS 10 was released in 2001 and Safari was released two years later. It's like, well, what did we do for that time? The answer was largely Internet Explorer. Yep, that big glossy aqua E in your dock. Super stripey. Yeah. And it had um it had the different themes where it matched the colors of IMAX uh or graphite if you wanted to be pro. The weirdest thing going back and and looking at the first version of Safari for me is the orange back arrow in the URL field or the separate Google field, which Apple gave the marketing name of the camel cased snapback because it seemed like that was going to change browsing. Is that like if you go down your Wikipedia rabbit hole and you want to get back to the the first page you looked at in this window, because back then there weren't even tabs, it would always give you a way back to like the first page with snapback instead of just like long pressing on the back button and going through the menu. Uh, they dedicated like time to that in the keynote. It was camel cased and in the press release, what happened to snapback? Oh, it wasn't that important of a thing. I forgot about it entirely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, the, the fact that, you know, this was a major modern rethinking of the operating system and that didn't even include a web browser that that was kind of fast. I mean, Maybe in one respect, that would have been the the wrong time to launch a web browser with your operating system. This was right around the time that Microsoft was going through big antitrust problems around Internet Explorer and it being so uh, hooked into the Windows operating system and not being able to get rid of it and being hard to have alternatives. Uh, So Apple may have been a little bit leery of that. But in the 2020s, the notion of shipping an operating system without a web browser, it's like it's like shipping a car without seats, yeah. right? Like, I mean, technically you can bring your own, but who wants to? Right. We've actually gone the other way where Chrome OS is a web browser that became the shipping operating system. That's how far we've come. Right. And so it's so integral to, to everything that we do to have a first-party web browsing option. Um, And yeah, I think it's really good that we've also decided that people should have choice uh, in terms of their their web browser. Uh, But it's just absolutely critical in the way that's, you know... um, I found a video that we can link that was an official demo about seven minutes long, about three of which is a movie trailer, but that, that's neither here nor there. Uh, I think it was for 10.1, maybe. So just, uh, and it shows off uh, the interface for, you know, connecting to the internet with a modem by opening up a particular system preference pane or a particular app uh, utility that was like in the utilities folder. And so... The notion of having a web browser was not as critical when there was the possibility that your Mac could be offline (laughs) for for large chunks of time. Whereas we know now that your Mac being offline uh, is equal to equals equals your Mac is broken. 
Like, didn't that happen just a few months ago where something in like the gatekeeper servers broke and like every Mac around the, the world could not, like you could not launch an app and it happened on my machine. Then it happened on my parents' machine and I'm getting calls from people like, are, are your apps breaking? It's like, what is this? The apocalypse? <laughs> we just can't reach the gatekeeper. Right. But if you go into like, uh, I almost said airplane mode, Max don't have airplane mode, but like, but if you turn off Wi-Fi, then suddenly all your apps will launch. Because <laughs> if you are actually offline, it's like, oh, you're in this strange situation. You, mu- you must be on an airplane. That's the only place where nobody can get internet anymore. We'll assume this app was good. It was good the last time we checked. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a pass on this one. <laughs> you did mention also in 10.2 uh, iChat, though, which um, was, let's say it, was an AOL Instant Messenger client. <laughs> 100%. Even though it had those like, uh, you know, other different like, was it Jabber, mm-hmm. um, which I think became the basis of of Google Chat. Oh, you're right. Which nobody uses anymore. <laughs> yeah, because it it's gone through. Well, Google's Google's chatting ecosystem is famously a mess. Y- yes, um, but Apple's is now famously a great credit uh, to them because. Uh, they decided to build iMessage into the iChat app and call it Messages then. And of course, then that natively works with iOS. Uh, and everyone knows that your blue bubbles are your friends and your green bubbles are your enemies. Um, so quite a lot came out of the fact that Apple thought that, really interestingly, building an app for someone else's service a first-party app for that primarily for a third-party service, or that relied on third-party services, because there was no iMessage back then, um, was an interesting choice. Not as obvious as Safari, right? You could you could sit in two thousand or two thousand and one and go, every computing device is going to need a web browser, mm-hmm. but it wasn't so obvious that like desktop Macs would need a messaging app uh, to be considered useful, or that that would be one of Apple's like top pieces of ip 20 years later uh just a fun little tie-in the original icon for iChat was the aol instant messenger like running yellow man yeah it must have been there must have been a actual corporate partnership there but uh the yellow running man has a blue chat bubble so even back then oh yeah he's like holding it yeah like like he's delivering it to someone here's and it has an exclamation point in it here's your chat even back then, that was that was the standout thing. Blue bubbles. Moving on to uh, 10.3, an important utility that maybe not many Mac users actively use, but uh, critical to uh, many things that they do use, Xcode finally came on the scene in 10.3. Uh, there were precursors to it, of course. Uh, you know, in those in those early days where Apple said, "We've created Cocoa." Uh, and that we would love you to rewrite all your apps. They didn't just say, um, <laughs> by magic. <laughs> I think like Interface Builder was a standalone app before Xcode and then got bundled into it. Right. And Interface Builder, you know, has, it had many, many years of Next Heritage before that. Um, but it was all about integrating the operating system tools with other IDEs. And this was the point where Apple said, if you want to be developing for our platform, you should really use our IDE. Uh, it's going to be the 
best for now and soon the only place that you can really get all of this functionality for building Mac apps. And then, of course, fast forward uh, seven, eight years down the line, the only place for building iOS apps. Um, And it's kind of funny, again, anytime that I hear someone say, uh, well, does Apple really care about the Mac? What if they just, like, let it fade away? And you just look at them and go, then where would the iOS apps come from? <laughs> Every single one has to be written in Xcode and it only runs in macOS. And so some of these features that were added in in point releases aren't surprises, right? Because some of them were the tentpole feature of that point release. Um, a case in point is Time Machine in 10.5, where <laughs> I think it's when we start to get the the spacey sub theme. Yeah, before we only had big cats, now we have big cats in space. <laughs> right. Uh so I only wanted to highlight Time Machine as something that was added in at an OS level later on because it replaced a different OS level backup thing that wasn't in 10.0 either. And this was the like often forgotten backup.app orangish red umbrella. The that umbrella was, that was tied to your whatever Apple was calling their uh, online accounting system at the point dot Mac mobile me whatever um, if you wanted to put some of your files maybe from your your cluttered documents folder um, back it up online that was kind of built in to uh, to subscribers of the the cloud account um, and then replaced of course by Time Machine. I really wanted to use backup uh, around that time. It was just before I actually got religion on backups, or maybe right around the time that I did. My my last catastrophic hard drive failure was in 2008. Ah, okay. And so that was right before Time Machine, right around the time of Time Machine. And I think once I finally got up and running from that, it was right around when they had announced the Time Capsule, which was a hardware product that relied on the operating system feature of Time Machine to back up across the network. And I was like, screw it, I'm getting one of these. I'm never not being backed up again. Yeah. And yeah, what a incredibly useful feature to have built in. And, and one of the ones where I don't think that there are parallels necessarily on other platforms. Like if you're on Chrome OS, it's like, well, you have to just trust that the truth is in the cloud. And if you're on Windows... I don't think there's a really great full disk first party citizen backup solution. Not that I know of. I think there's some kind of state restore more for um, debugging or solving problems that happen to your system installation and not really to like backup your content files. Um, But I, I might be wrong about that. Whereas, you know, recently I've helped people move from Windows PCs to a Mac. And it's like, okay, and we're buying you a terabyte hard drive and we're hanging it off the back of your machine and we're turning on this thing called Time Machine. Don't worry about it, but it's happening. In case of <laughs> Just fire. Just leave that thing plugged in. Yeah. It's a laptop. When you come back to your desk, plug it in. Yeah. <laughs> um, in case of fire, did you say? Yeah, I said in case of fire, grab that thing. <laughs> uh, grab everything. But. Yeah. At, at my old job, um, there was not a, a universal backup solution, which was bad. Um, so I bought a hard drive and backed up my, my work computer as well. And I kept the drive and filing cabinet at my office. And one day we had like a very unexpected fire drill. Like usually they would come around and announce like, Hey, we're going to test it. Um, 
And I like picked up the drive and I walked out and one of my colleagues who was one of the more technically minded people in the office, he's like, um, so like all that stuff we have, if this is a real fire, like it's all gone. Right. And I just like pulled the little drive out of my pocket. He's like, you would. (laughs) That's like data Darwinism. (laughs) Um, another, a big feature that was added this time in 10.6 was, of course, the App Store. This is the one that's shocking to me on the timeline. Mac App Store, macOS 10.6. It feels like too low of a number. But it reminds me that earlier on in macOS 10, it was not on a yearly cadence. Things went up to like two and a half years between the major releases. And so... You say App Store, uh, Mac App Store was 2009, right? I think so, yeah. Because it was iPhone 07, iOS App Store the next year, and then a year after that, Mac App Store. And so, like, I know where that is on the timeline, and just the version number feels a little bit weird. Maybe what's contributing to that is that, sure, the Mac App Store launched with 10.6, but I think it was 10.8 where... Um, system updates were transferred from the system preferences app to the Mac app store. So maybe that's, that's part of it. Like where the Mac app store became all encompassing for downloading software bits over the internet. Yeah, that could be with the Mac app store. Another part of the thing, part of why it's hard for me to wrap my brain around when it was and why 10.6 seems so early is because it hasn't really changed. (laughs) Right. And there have been some recent conversations about like, why is it so stagnant? What did Apple do wrong? Is it too late for them to change their mind on it? Those kinds of things. And it's, it's a tough conversation. It it feels like it should be a, a big celebrated tentpole feature, but man, I'm way more, I'm way happier about many of the other things that we've listed existing. Right? Like, I don't use Xcode. I don't even have it installed, but I'm thrilled that it's a part of the operating system or at least like the, the first party suite of applications that go with it. <laughs> and the Mac App Store is like, um, it's a place where I, I got some apps that that was the only way to do it. And it fails at updating occasionally. And it mostly frustrates me. I thought you might have been going down um, policy, the policy side of the Mac App Store and things like uh, paid updates or uh, better ways to try things out other than like the free trial leading into subscriptions. But yeah, uh, just just as an application running within the operating system, it's a bad application. Brent Simmons, who makes Net Newswire, I think is credited for popularizing the term a Mac ass Mac app. Like it, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it's something that belongs on the Mac let alone something that Apple made to run on the Mac. Like there are back arrows that uh, like kind of override your history going between sections on the sidebar and it's like it and a done um, button at the upper right that has the same function as a back arrow on the upper left. Like it, it makes no sense. Yeah. And then the other day I just you know, it said there are updates available and I opened it up and I uh, clicked on the updates tab, which said had a little uh, six badge next to it. And it was just a white square. There's nothing there. <laughs> You can do command R on that, even though I don't think it's a menu item because everything is a web browser. Oh, jeez, That's a trick. If only I knew. This next 
item is the one for me that's like, how is this version number so high? And it's emoji, which didn't come baked into the Mac OS until 10.7. I mean, emoji weren't official in iOS until until iPhone OS 4, right? Right. And even I think official might be stretching it because there was that initial period where if you were in a Japanese localization or a Japanese install, they were part of your system keyboard, but you had to buy like a 99 cent unlocker app anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I think that was in in late iOS or iPhone OS 3 days. Yeah. I definitely spent that 99 cents. <laughs> <laughs> right, but emoji are, um, I mean, table stakes feature because um, people... People expect them to be part of the way that you can write on a computing device. And of course, now we know them as a major driver of of upgrades. That's right. We've all been on uh, video conferencing, and I'm sure they're accompanied by some kind of slideshow presentation. And it is great when the emoji either look different or you just get the, the black square because you're on some different version of Unicode or something, and it's just not cross-compatible. Like, we are still running into this where, like you said, uh, emoji should be table stakes. Like, older versions of the OS should get updated for, like, the latest revision of Unicode and support it and get the fonts and everything. Like, it's table stakes. Come on. I understand where they want to use it as the carrot to get people to actually upgrade the whole the whole dang thing. Um, my favorite implementation right now is Discord on the Mac. Um, I think Discord uses the Twitter emoji set, the ones with the kind of square looking hands. Okay. And they're open source. And so they uh, have that all within the app. And so you're always up to date. They always have the full set. Uh, But something strange about the way that they've coded the Mac client is that that works in messages and reactions, but if someone puts an emoji in their username, it renders it using the system emoji. <laughs> so they will they will at minimum look completely different, and uh, and at maximum, if you are running an older version of macOS, you'll get the blocks boxes and squares and stuff. <laughs> well, at least it's better than the early versions of the Slack desktop client, which I think had individual image files for each of like screenshots of Apple's emoji font that they were mapping. That they just stole from Apple. (laughs) And wouldn't update. Uh, Until Apple said, you realize that those are copyrighted and we will sue you. (laughs) Yeah. We have one final uh, major operating system feature on here. One of these underlying things uh, that didn't come along until macOS 10.13. Many years of uh, hypercritical and accidental tech podcast later. (laughs) Uh, the introduction of a new file system, ding, uh, in APFS. Again, an- another thing that I am not enjoying the benefits of because my poor, sad iMac has a Fusion Drive. This might be the most technologically commendable thing because as far as we know, nobody lost data. And in like upgrading from Sierra to High Sierra, if you had an SSD, just rewrote the file system on your boot hard disk silently and like pretty quickly, all things considered. Like you go back to the days of Norton Utilities defragmenting your old HFS classic hard drive. Like the fact that this was something that was introduced with a with an OS upgrade is pretty remarkable. 
it makes me think of the metaphor of like building the airplane as you go. <laughs> yeah. Except this is like Delta saying that they're going to replace parts on every airplane they own while they're flying in the air in one day <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> for everybody. It'll be fine. And 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 they all landed safely. Like wow. Pretty great. Yeah, that's the kind of uh technology that Apple can uh can bring to bear on on macOS now. Um, and thinking of the current version, which is uh, macOS 11, Big Sur, we've gone to 11. Um, I think it's kind of nice and fitting that um, two decades in, we've said, okay, that, that was a big arc. Um, we stopped calling it macOS 10. We got rid of the X. Um, it was still in the version number, but, but we can move on. We're going to do a ton of technical stuff uh, for another major uh, transition, the M1 transition. I mean, hell, we're going to run iOS apps on these things. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so huge underpinning changes to the operating system. You'd say, well, that that would be well and good enough. And they said, and we uh, did a complete redesign of it um, that is the biggest visual redesign that we've done maybe since Aqua. Um, I mean, there have been a couple of intermediate redesigns in the meantime with Mavericks, the, the flattening, uh, but I would say this is at least as big of a step and uh and probably bigger. That's how big the beast is that they can they can add on just for funsies a, a huge uh visual redesign <laughs> of Mac OS. Yeah, and there have been a couple of times in this episode where we've talked about people back then trying to forecast forward, like whether it's um will quote unquote Mac OS ten be the foundation for other operating systems so far into the future, or will Mac OS 10 even exist as an operating system so far into the future? But here we are 20 years later and uh, right on the heels of a major new release, like new interface, new uh, architectures that it supports. And I think that's an indication if nothing else is that the Mac and the Mac OS will continue as a, as this thing, this standalone thing for many more years. Fast forward 20 more years, and I think it's reasonably confident <laughs> to say that there will be a platform called macOS. Mm-hmm. We don't know what it'll look like, uh, but it, it it seems almost a certainty. The version number will probably be 31, but hey, we'll, we'll figure that out later. It'll be lower than Chrome. <laughs> Is there anything else to add on about the legacy of of macOS? I mean, we we can say that now that we've dropped the ten and moved to eleven. That that we can uh, not only celebrate this milestone, but but close a chapter, a soft closing. We're not putting it in, in mm-hmm. the ground like macOS nine, um, but we can say what are you know what else is there to say about uh, what that nineteen plus years of of operating system history did for us. One thing you can point out is that it's already lasted longer than the classic Mac OS did. Oh, by a long shot. And in that in its longer lifespan, it has not just weathered this transition from x86 to Apple Silicon, but it made uh, 32 to 64 bit transitions with PowerPC, of course, PowerPC to Intel. And because there were those weak little core solos, <laughs> 32-bit to 64-bit Intel as well. So it is it is really spanned 
um, like eras of computing. Again, it didn't even come with a browser at first. So <laughs> that whole paradigm has changed. It's spanned hardware. It's spanned basically uh, what Apple kind of represents as a company. It went from the Mac company to the iPod company to the iPhone services revenue. <laughs> We're a TV channel, <laughs> everything <laughs> company. Um, it's been there the entire time. Mac OS 10 specifically. Yeah. And I think the, the references to the hardware platforms, uh, really shows that, that, um, we're marking the anniversary of, a, of a huge inflection point, one of these just cliffs, right? Mm-hmm. Where everything changed when Mac OS 10.0 was released. And we haven't had an everything changed moment in the operating system since then, even though we've had two everything changed in the hardware since then. Um, it, what makes the hardware of a Mac now and what made the hardware of a Mac in 2001 just completely, I mean, like, if you can get a USB-A port on your current Mac, that's like the closest thing that overlaps <laughs> right. between between then and now. Just everything has changed out with lots of sharp turns along the way and and these huge cliffs that things fall off of whereas Mac OS has been this gradual through line and continues on yeah so i think that wraps up this special episode of simple beep um i don't know what our next big uh, milestone might be uh we said when we signed off of the the last regular episode that uh, there may be things in the future. This is the first of those, and, yeah, and there the may last. still be more to come. Um, if you've been missing me and Brian, though, we have been doing another podcast for the past year, uh, something that we were not able to announce on Simple Beep previously, uh, but we have a show called One More Thing, which is, a, yes, that's a tip of the hat to you, the the classic Apple nerds, <laughs> uh, with our friend E. Forney where every couple of weeks we each pick a topic of something that uh, we have gotten super into for whatever reason. Uh, They can be current or they can be things that we're old things that we're discovering or things that we're rediscovering. We cover TV, movies, video games, uh, sports, music, food, culture, all kinds of things. We have um, a very cool list of all the topics that we've done um, that you can see on the website for that podcast, which is one more thing dot show. So, uh, we'd love it if you check that out, uh, a little bit of a different vibe, uh, but we have fun, fun doing that. And we're really happy that we're still on the microphone every couple of weeks. And of course, uh, if you want to see the show notes for this episode or check out our back catalog and all of those episodes, show notes, we still, of course, maintain simplebeep.com and you can find simple beep in, uh, your podcast app of choice, whichever one supports the iTunes directory. <laughs> Is it still called that? <laughs> iTunes. iTunes came and went in the 20 years of Mac OS X. Sure did. Sure did. Uh, yeah, we're, we're keeping the, the feed and all the episodes uh, online as, as long as uh, we find it to be uh, practicable. And it, it still is. And, and of course, if there ever does come a point where we have to transition those off, you know, We'll make sure that everything's up on the Internet Archive or something and, and give everybody ample notice. But for now, yeah, the, the, the feed is still there. Um, don't send in feedback, though, because it might be a very long time before right. you get any response. 
similarly, even though uh, feedback may not show up in a future episode's follow-up, we still, well, Ed still maintains the at simple underscore beep Twitter account, um, which is a great follow, I will say. If you like listening to this podcast, (laughs) uh, just follow it on Twitter and, and you may not be able to listen to it, you know, every two weeks or every month, but little nuggets will, will pop into your feed and it's a delight. Right. There's, there's always little, uh, little reminiscences, little classic Apple news, uh, stuff that comes up, um, you know, art being made with classic Macs, um, gems that, uh, Stephen Trouton Smith or John Syracuse have come up with. And, uh, you know, whenever I see those things, I don't put them out on my personal account. I've, I've got simple beep for that, which, uh, which makes me happy. Uh, things that even when we were doing the show regularly wouldn't, wouldn't fill out a full episode. Uh, that, that stream of stuff, uh, is, is never going away. And of course we do have personal Twitter accounts. Um, I'm at Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. And I'm at Ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening and, uh, enjoy the next 20 years of macOS, everybody.